it was a pretty lonely job for a period of time. People that had known me my whole life that were calling and saying, Christy, get in line with these other governors. You know, this is going to be politically destruction for you. Today I sit down with the governor of South Dakota, Christy Nome, the only governor to never lock down businesses during the COVID pandemic. At the end of the day, I wanted to make sure that I could look back years from now and be proud of the fact that I did my job and only my job. If leaders do overstep their authority, especially in a time of crisis, that's when we break this country. And I didn't want to be that person. We discuss her life, COVID policy, transgender athletes in women's sports, and the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Her new book is titled, Not My First Rodeo, Lessons from the Heartland. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellick. Before we get started, I have a message from the sponsor of this podcast. Inflation is at its highest in 40 years, and it's eating away at your savings. Interest rates are also on the rise. American Hartford Gold can show you how to protect the value of your savings and retirement accounts by diversifying your portfolio with physical gold and silver. All it takes to get started is a short phone call and they'll have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k, and they make it easy. They are the highest rated firm in the country with an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they will give you up to $1,500 of free silver on your first qualifying order. So don't wait, call them now. Call 855-862-3377. That's 855-862-3377 or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Governor Christy Nome, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Oh, it's so wonderful to be here. Thank you for inviting me. It might be surprising to people that you would say that working on a farm, growing up on a farm, and everything that goes with that is actually something that has helped you in politics. And I might add uh, the Snow Queen competition, oh my goodness, right? Yes. But but the, <laughs> but the farm is 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 the thing that just I, I I think there's a lot of people who simply might not understand. So why don't you give me an outline here? Well, I think it's good for people to know that I grew up with a dad who was a cowboy. Um, very matter of fact, uh, we never talked about politics at all. Nobody in my family is involved in government or the political arena. We lived our politics. You know, I tell the story quite often about when South Dakota passed a seatbelt requirement. I remember never having the discussion about it. I just remember seeing my dad cut the seatbelts out of his pickup. And I asked him about it because he wore his seatbelt, but he he wasn't that he didn't like seatbelts. It was that he was mad the government was going to tell him he had to. And those kinds of things make an impression on you when you're young. Um, He always consistently said, we don't complain about things, we fix them. Uh, And it wasn't really until he passed away in an accident. uh, And we got hit with the death tax, which was a very unfair tax at the time. We almost lost our family business because of that tax that I started to show up at meetings, got passionate about tax reform, got involved. Uh, based on the fact that my dad said, we don't complain about things, we fix them. So there's a lot of lessons on a ranch, teamwork, uh, learning and watching animals, trying to figure them out, teaches you a lot about the behaviors of people, that that, uh, words have consequences and an impact, and also just what uh, challenges and how to figure it out. Uh, Very much living the kind of lifestyle that we lived turned us into problem solvers. 
you know, we, you, you tackle a problem, figure it out, and it builds your confidence to take on the next biggest one that comes your way. And then, so what about the, this, this Snow Queen competition? I mean, I can kind of imagine, right, what that is. You describe it a little bit, but... Well, you know, it's really strange, and it's one of those things I don't talk about very much, but I decided I had to put it in my book because people were going to bring it up and ask me why it wasn't there if I didn't. But, you know, in South Dakota, there's always been this Snow Queen competition for decades and decades. And what happens back when I was in high school was every senior girl at the local level uh, competed. It gave you a chance to learn how to do an interview, which helped you with, you know, jobs later or college. You gave speeches. You learned how to introduce yourself. And also when you won, you got scholarships to school. So most young women were looking for an opportunity to go get a higher education and you got the use of a car for a year. So having a free car for a year isn't a bad thing. So most everybody competed. Uh, I happened to end up winning the local contest and went to the state level one uh, which had 52 girls in it at the time. And when I won, it was a shock. In fact, I remember the headlines the next day said, farm girl wins snow queen, <laughs> because it was just a very different thing for me to be doing. Uh, but I spent the next year traveling the country talking about South Dakota, you know, being a representative and ambassador for the state, uh, learning how to give speeches and interviews. So it was it was probably a very good preparation for the job that I do today. And from the time I was young, I knew a lot about South Dakota. But at that time, you weren't thinking uh, Congress, governor, or even... No, I was thinking a free car looked pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a grand dam with a sunroof. So, you know, that's not a bad thing. Something that really comes through uh, in, in this book, which kind of touched me, actually, was how important your husband... Mm-hmm was in your decision making and that you know you're obviously a very type a woman you're, you're on top of things you know what you want but it seems like your husband's role is actually pretty important in this and you this isn't your this isn't you playing alone so and this again also might mm -hmm. be a surprise to some I think so too you know it's it's interesting our faith is incredibly important to us and scripture specifically talks about you know, a husband and a wife and the relationship that should be there. So even though I'm a very quick decision maker, um, I, I typically know what I want to do, have plans and, and go after them wholeheartedly. I knew that being married and, and having a husband uh, was a teammate and a partner for me and a source of wisdom. So most of the time he is the balance to, to me. He's the one that slows me down and, and puts a lot of thought into prayer into every decision that we make. I also knew that when he married me, he thought I was going to be a rancher the rest of my life. So uh, the fact that we are where we are today is is pretty incredible. But he he is more willing to really look at the long-reaching effects of the decisions that I make. You know, if you run for this office, what does that mean for our family? What does that mean for how our holidays will look? What does that mean for how do I take care of these children when you're gone for four days in a row? And, and that's good, good things to do because for me, my tendency is just to say yes. Somebody asks me to do something, I'll say, yeah, absolutely. And if they give me three options, according to him, I always pick the hardest one. He said, there's something about you where, you know, if people tell you three different things to do, you pick the hardest one to do. And I, I tend to say to him, well, it's always the right one. And he said it may be, but it's always the hardest one. And that means that there's going to be a ripple effect of consequences for him and the kids too. There's an interesting principle there too, because I think in our society today, 
many of us definitely try to take the path of least resistance. It's almost, you're almost taught that that's the way one should be. So what do you think? I think that is a big, um, a big result of the influence of my parents. Um, my dad demanded excellence. Um, you know, I, we, we got into a fight uh, one time when I was, I think I was already married. It, wasn't, it was an argument over how we fed the cows. Uh, which sounds kind of funny, but you do chores twice a day. And when you do that, you give the cattle mineral to mix with the feed. But I had just finished doing chores in the morning, had a half a bag of mineral left, and I wanted to leave it uh, by the rest of the feeds because when I came back in literally two hours, I would need it again. My dad, though, required that it be carried back, put in the shed so it was covered up and put away properly. And then in two hours, I could go back to that shed, get it, and take it back out to the feed. For me, that seemed inefficient and ridiculous when I was going to be uh, doing, dealing with this in just two hours' time. But, but that's the difference, is the responsible thing to do is when you use things, put them away, even if it was going to be needed shortly later. Um, but, but that was the, what I was raised in, that no matter what, even if it's harder, it takes you a little bit more time to do things right, you do it right all the time you do it correctly, you do things with excellence, and be proud of the work that you do. And that may be a, a result of me always, why I choose the hardest thing all the time is, if it is the right thing, it's worth doing. It seems like whenever these tough decisions come along, and you, you've made an effort to put this into the book, so I, obviously it's very important to you, is there's this, you know, you, you're, you're not, you're making the decision with your with your husband. Mm -hmm. You're consulting with people, but you're also consulting with <laughs> <laughs> God, and we're also consulting with God and sometimes arguing with Him. Yeah, you know, there's times that I feel like uh, I very much know what God wants me to do, um, and my biggest desires to be obedient. Um, you know, I I want to live a life of significance. I want to live a life that is relevant and makes a difference, um, but. I also recognize that I still always, I still feel like I'm not meeting my full purpose of what I'm supposed to be doing, hmm. which is a very difficult thing to be married to, I think, because my husband thinks I'm very busy already. He sees me working 20 hours a day and says, how could you possibly do more? And can't you just come home and, you know, make a meal, <laughs> you know, spend some time watching TV? So that is a little bit of the challenge. But you know, God is uh, an important part of our life, and I think that that is often how Brian and I end up coming together on a decision, is we may take us longer both to arrive at the same decision, but we both have a heart to do what God would have for our family, and that's how we usually end up, at the end of the day, making those important decisions. There's a lot of people in America who don't have that relationship, or mm -hmm. even maybe worry about people who, who do have it, frankly, yeah. right? And, you know, you're acting as a representative for everybody. I mean, and maybe I'll ask you later if that you plan to be, want to be a representative for even more people but, uh, than just South Dakota, but how do you square that? How do you talk to folks that are well, thinking this? I think it's this? key that, that people not judge each other for where they're at. Um, you know, I, I think that's where we end up in problems. I see a lot of Christians today that say they have a strong faith that don't act like it. They don't love people. Uh, they hold other people to a higher standard than they do themselves. Um, so that, that really is, um, you know, I think that what this country is struggling with. I certainly have a strong faith. It gives me my value system. I make my decisions from there, and I am pretty plain and honest about what those are. 
Uh, then I ask people to support me for office. I hope that they'll understand who I am. And then, uh, you know, I'll serve them. And if they appreciate what I've done, then maybe they'll support me again. But I think if people aren't Christians, if they aren't a, don't have the same faith that I do, the most important thing that I can do is still love them and want to work for them. I, we lose sight of that quite often in this country. We get judgmental of people and assume that um, they aren't as important, important as we are. And that's just not even... That's not even scriptural. That's not even American. Yeah, and you, you, know, you include this moment in the book where I think you, you say it's embarrassment and uh, fa you're wishing failure and embarrassment on President Obama, and mm -hmm. then you stop yourself. And I, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it was during, when I first got to Congress, I had been there, I think, two years, and it came time to listen to President Obama's State of the Union speech. And as a representative, that's always a circus, you know. Because you have to get there a couple of hours early, get through security, you sit on the House floor board waiting for it to stay. It's a lot, or start, it's a lot of pomp and circumstance, a lot of jumping to your feet and clapping, and I just didn't want to go. I had a bad attitude. I wasn't happy with some of the decisions the president was making. My chief of staff was, well, you have to go. If you aren't there, it doesn't look good. It looks like you don't respect the president. And I agreed and went. But I remember standing at the back of the House floor listening to President Obama's talk and being angry. I, I, I was listening to him thinking he's lying, he's not telling the truth. And I started to pray, you know what, God, I hope he screws up. I hope he misspeaks. You know, maybe even what he's saying, hopefully the American people aren't understanding, you know, confuse his speech. And just, I really was in a bad spot as far as where my heart was. And I remember within just a minute or two, immediately feeling convicted that I was doing the exact opposite of what God had called me to do. I mean, it's pretty clear in the Bible that you're supposed to pray for your leaders, not against them. <laughs> and here I was standing on, having the honor of standing on the United States House of Representatives floor, watching the President of the United States give a speech, and I was praying against him, and I felt horrible. So that, that fixed my my attitude that night, I started to pray for him. And I thought, you know, we think so much that all is lost in this country. Um, all it takes is God to change a couple of hearts. Imagine if, you know, if you did have a leader in the country or even in your state that had a hard heart um, that was bitter and angry and cold, um, God can change that overnight. And if their heart is changed, think of how their decisions would change. Think of how their leadership would change. So we forget about the miracle that so many of us believe in that it actually still could happen today and a life could be changed. So let's talk about you know, le leadership. There's been some really tough leadership decisions that you've had to make over the last few years. You talk about you know, the, the big floods that were in South Dakota and that, that fascinating, but let, let, let's kind of move ahead a little bit to COVID. Mm -hmm. um, you have this I, the interesting distinction in your state of never having mandated business closures. Mm -hmm one state out of 50. Mm-hmm, right. And so how did that happen? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. Um, it was a pretty lonely job for a period of time, um, you know, because while I was making the decision not to shut anything down, not even define what an essential business was in my state because I didn't believe that govern governments or governments uh, had the ability to tell you your business wasn't essential. Um, you know, I, got, I was getting criticism not just from Democrats. 
I was getting criticism from other Republicans, uh, from my supporters, you know, from people that had known me my whole life that were calling and saying, Christy, you know, get in line with these other governors. You know, this is going to be politically destruction for you. Um, you need to, you know, do what they're all doing. So it was, it was pretty lonely. But I'd spent a ton of time, not only with health officials, but also with constitutional attorneys and knew what my job was and knew what my job was not, what authority I had. And I, at the end of the day, I wanted to make sure that I could look back years from now and be proud of the fact that I did my job and only my job. So I'm just a big believer that if leaders do overstep their authority, especially in a time of crisis, that that's when we break this country. And I didn't want to be that person. You did institute a state of emergency. So that, that's actually an interesting question because, you know, mm -hmm. obviously that exists for mm -hmm. situations that are emergencies. It is a kind of overreach, but it's the one that everyone agrees to. Right? Well, for, this, yeah. Yeah. So what the state of emergency actually does is it allows you to coordinate with other governments as well, with local and with the nat national and federal government as well. So when you declare that, it gives you the ability to streamline through regulations um, cut time frames, you know, shorter so you can respond quicker and to partner with the federal government and get resources in ways that you just can't without that state of emergency. So we did have that for a period of time. Uh, and then we also, I think we're the first state to let it go and to, to let it not be in place anymore and recognize that life had to return back to normal, that we could, knowing what we knew about the virus, not have to worry about necessarily that expedited approval process and and make sure that we followed through on still taking care of people. I think what's important is we saw in so many different states people penalize others for not falling in line, enforcement mechanisms that were not possible. We certainly made recommendations, but in every emergency declaration or executive order that I had, the language was clearly in there that it said, shall if possible, uh, should if possible, which meant to the people that I believe strongly they should do this if it was possible for them to do so. Leaving that flexibility was incredibly important for me. Obviously, people's you know right to make decisions about their lives very important to you. Mm -hmm. I can, we can see how the, the farm life you know contributed to, to you thinking this way. So, right now, I think you're in a position where um, because none of these businesses were you know locked down or closed, that the country. The state's doing pretty well. Yeah, the state's doing fantastic. Uh, you know, and I'd say that's a direct result of the people. It's amazing the things that they did to come together to really tell the story of South Dakota, to invite people to come and visit us. A lot of the people who came to visit us in 2020 were so inspired by what they saw of this state protecting freedom. They went back home, packed up their families, and moved. We have tens of thousands of new people that have moved to South Dakota. Um, you know, hundreds of new businesses, our economies, the strongest economy in the nation. Our kids are leading the nation in educational outcomes. Our incomes are going up faster than anywhere else. Um, you know, we are just really doing extremely well and have less than a thousand people in the entire country that, or in the entire state that are on unemployment. So it's a, it's a really a testimony to doing what conservative people believe in and what we've always said we believed in, actually doing it, and it worked. Some of the criticism you got early on, mm -hmm. I remember seeing it, um, mm -hmm. was simply that you're not following the science. No, that's true, but the science that they were saying was science was not even true. 
you know, I started talking to health experts that, that they were referencing. I also went further and looked at other studies, talked to other people in other countries, states where that were on the ground, uh, dealing with people that were sick in other areas of the country before it ever got to South Dakota. I think that perspective helped a lot. Uh, and, and one thing that I saw leaders do too often was focus on the national news, what they were hearing in the news and not really shutting that off and looking at what was happening in their states, what was happening in these towns, because that was the perspective you needed to keep on really how to take care of people. Talk to those doctors that were in those hospitals on what was working and what wasn't. And using the research of what we knew for viruses. You know, what they told me before it ever got to South Dakota was that I would have over 300,000 people that would be dead from the virus if I didn't do certain things. Well, the more you researched it, you could tell that what they were recommending wasn't going to be the correct response to how we really get through this in a long term. Sustainability was a big conversation. You can tell people, you know, President Trump recommended that everybody stay home for two weeks. And I think virtually everybody in the country stayed home for two weeks. Uh, in South Dakota, I recommended that people listen to the president and stay home if they could. Um, but after that, you realize how long can we do this? And that was a big factor for me too, is what is a mechanism, something we can tell people would be a good thing to do, but that they could do for six months or they could do for a year because doing something for a short period of time only would delay the amount of sickness and the bubble mm -hmm. and the curve that we were all looking at coming. So, so that was, you know, that perspective of having a balanced approach was really important. You put a lot of value in sort of maintaining only your constitutional authority and nothing more. Mm -hmm. That's what you referenced. Why? It's my job. You know, I, I guess, I've learned the, an appreciation for that. I've seen enough policy get overturned in court because it went beyond what the authority was that, that was given to either the legislative branch or to the executive branch. I've watched throughout the years. You know, I screw up every day, and that's the thing that I think is important in this country is I'm not perfect, but I do want to be teachable. And, you know, I've had different positions over the years while I've been in elected office that I've been very clear on and then I learn more on an issue and I think well you know what there is another side to this story and if I'm going to learn more or, or have a little bit of a different perspective that's a good thing to explain to people so for me the one thing that's consistent that's protected this country for hundreds of years is literally the framework that our founders gave us uh, and it is what you can't go wrong as long as you start with a good foundation uh, it'll, it'll keep you even during the shakiest times. So many, many times throughout the last several years as governor, that was my guiding light uh, to come back to our state constitution, our U.S. constitution, to really understand what my role was as governor. Because it's a very different role than serving in Congress. Mm -hmm. And it, it was a very different job. So, so that's what I needed to make sure that I was always remembering was while I did this job for eight years, now I'm in a different role, and this is the authority that I have, and I need to make sure that I follow that, that guideline, that job description. You say in the book that uh, in Congress, you were kind of shocked, at least initially in 2010, by your, the naked admission you were seeing, especially I think when, uh, when Congressman Dave Bratt, for example, you know, won this kind of big surprise election. Right. You were getting phone calls immediately. That's what you describe there. 
Yeah. Well, what people that's that day we were in session in Washington D.C. Uh, Eric Cantor was the majority leader in the House, so he was in D.C. working all day, and I was at an event with him when he left town uh, to go back to Virginia to his district for his celebration party. And everybody was very clear that he would be back the next day and we would be congratulating him on this victory from a primary challenge that he had from somebody that nobody had ever heard of before. So you can imagine our shock when, you know, we weren't, none of us as other members of Congress weren't on the ground seeing what was going on in that district. All of a sudden turn on the news after voting that night. I was back in my office working at my desk and started to see on the headlines of every network uh, Eric Cantor loses his primary. You know, it was a shock to the entire country. A bellwether is what they would say of what could be coming, and it made every elected official serving in Congress wonder, boy, I wonder if this means something for my race, too. So, you know, what happened immediately, though, that I thought was so strange was watching the news, all of a sudden my phone started to buzz. I just kept getting text after text after text, and it was, as I read them, it was members of Congress texting me and saying, Christy, Eric lost his race. Did you see that? And I would text back and say, yes, I did see that. I'm shocked. And they would say, well, I'm running for majority leader. As you know, when Eric loses, then we have to elect a new majority leader and wondering if you'd help me get the votes. And I got many of those texts. I bet there was seven or eight different people texting me that night asking me, Christy, I want to run for majority leader. Will you help me? What, what it taught me was the next morning, I got to the floor and was explaining during votes to some of my colleagues how it made me feel. I said what I realized was that every one of those texts came from a man. That every man immediately thought I would be the best majority leader ever. You know, there's this confidence that men tend to have that I'm fantastic and I can do anything. I said what, what bothered me a little bit is that I didn't have a single woman text me. Mm -hmm. um, and we had some very intelligent, smart, brilliant, women who were great leaders, but not one of them reached out to text me. And I thought, this might be an indication about how men and women approach, you know, opportunities that men immediately think I can do this job. I'd be great. And women might tend to think, boy, I don't know if I can do this job. There might be somebody better. I, I'm busy. I've got a lot of things on my plate. I'm not sure I have the gift or the talents. And it reminded me that women oftentimes need to be asked to step up. Hmm. Um, that, that the way we're designed is, is probably more to not necessarily think we're the one who has to lead. But I do think it's important that women are a part of the conversation just because our perspective is different. There's a woman's perspective on every issue, and it might give a perspective that helps it become better policy. And that's why it's important to hear what they think, what they know. I've heard many stories of, you know, sort of idealistic new congressional members going to D.C. and after some time that somehow changes, like the system yeah. changes them in many cases in unpleasant ways. Um, how do you prevent that from happening? I think that happens in any job. I mean, don't you think that people that in a business go in, they hit the bureaucracy, the grinder of a wheel of other people that have been there for 20 years. It slows them down. It stops them. I found it even in state government. I have a big idea, and once I turn it over to staff, it gets down to the bureaucracy of a state agency, and they think, well, she's only here for four years. 
<laughs> if we slow her down enough, maybe we don't really have to reform this entire agency. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, I do see that in Washington, D.C., but it's even more compounded because we take people completely out of their element, put them with a whole new set of individuals surrounded by a process they're not familiar with, and it completely upturns, you know, and upends uh, what they thought they were expecting it to be. So, you know, the, the bureaucracy of state government has been surprising to me. Um, federal government is a hundred times more, uh, and it is designed to slow things down. The regulations that we've put in place over the last hundred years as well makes it worse. It's really a lot like, going to Congress is a lot like going to college. I mean, that's what I tell people. You pack up your suitcase every week, you you go to Washington, D.C., your friends are there, but your family's not. For me, I found it incredibly lonely. And uh, and you run into people that are constantly telling you what they think should happen, what, what they think should be doing. And it many times is a very different message than what you hear from the people back home. You got a lot of criticism a while back when you declined to sign uh, this law about uh, preventing transgender women from participating in women's sports. Mm -hmm. And you know, subsequently, you worked on this issue. I just wanted to give you an opportunity to kind of speak to what was going on, what your thoughts are on this, how it works sure. for you. Yeah. You know, I'd worked on this issue for many years. In fact, back when I was in Congress, uh, the federal government came in and told the state of South Dakota told our sport of rodeo that they could no longer have girls' events and boys' events, uh, that we had to eliminate all that and never reference boys or girls in the sport of rodeo in our state. Well, serving in Congress at the time, I was furious. Of course, I'm passionate about rodeo as well. And uh, I remember trying to get them to change uh, their position and not getting any help from my colleagues. I didn't get any help from my delegation even. Nobody wanted to touch this issue because it was so politically charged. Uh, they knew that it would be a fight and that it would look like there would be bias against transgender individuals. Uh, but I pushed and eventually got the federal government to back off. And they, to this day in South Dakota, we still are allowed to have girls events and boys events in the sport of rodeo. So I was really surprised at the criticism that I received when the first bill came forward on girls sports in South Dakota. I've always supported only girls playing in girls sports. But the legislature gave me a bill that was very flawed. Uh, the bill they put on my desk uh, would have been put in court immediately because of the way it was drafted. It did not define a lot of definitions in the bill, performance enhancing drugs. Uh, it, it put liability issues on schools that would be hundreds of millions of dollars if one student uh, on an athletic team used an asthma inhaler or got a cortisone shop, shot, uh, the entire school could be sued for hundreds of millions of dollars just because those definitions weren't there. What I did was go back and change that bill and send it back to the legislature and ask them to accept the changes. Um, they refused to. Uh, therefore, the bill died. And that very same day, I signed executive orders in the state of South Dakota saying that only girls could play in girls sports at the K-12 level and the collegiate level. The reason that I did that is because it was important to me to protect those sports. Hmm. I knew that if I had signed a flawed bill, it would immediately be challenged in court. And while it was in court, I wouldn't be able to enforce anything. And it could be tied up for several years and they would normalize boys playing in girls sports in our state. And by the time we got done with the legal challenges, it'd be very difficult to change people's hearts and minds again. So instead, 
When the legislature did not uh, accept my changes, I did executive orders to protect our sports until I could run a bill this year. And this year we ran the strongest bill in the nation that will withstand any court challenge, and I signed it into law. It was the very first law that I signed into place during our legislative session this year. So, you know, my leadership has been very clear on this issue. I saw that, you know, I've always been attacked by liberals. This was interesting to me because it was the first time I was attacked by my friends. I realized how competitive can, even conservatives can be if they think that um, they've got an area they can attack you on for a future race if they want to. But, mm. you know, those executive orders nobody's reported on. I signed those executive orders the very day the bill died the first time in South Dakota and not a single reporter covered it, the truth of the fact that I was taking action to protect girls' sports. So I do appreciate you letting me clarify that. And that's why I wrote about it in my book was because I think people need to know the truth and understand that even uh, our friends on the right don't necessarily always tell the truth about what really happened. Well, and decision-making is complicated. Mm -hmm. Well, and as my husband would say again, I chose the hard path. He said, you could have easily signed a flawed bill um, and it could have ended up in court. And, you know, maybe you would have been able to get another bill passed before that one was overturned. And I said, but I couldn't take the risk of setting precedent in court. I didn't want to take that kind of risk that we'd have a court decision now we'd have to deal with that really did jeopardize protecting girls sports. So it was the hard path to do, but it was the right one. So there was a huge precedent that was recently <laughs> struck down. Tell me what you make of, uh, you know, basically Dobbs being struck down. I think it's fantastic that the Supreme Court went back and fixed a wrong decision from decades ago. And what this really did was to move the decision-making down to the state level where it should be. So now uh, the decision of abortion, and if it's legal or not, will be made at the state level, where elected officials can hear from the people closer to home. And that's the way uh, that I think uh, is proper and, and defined by our Constitution. I'm grateful that in South Dakota we had a trigger law in place that said uh, if Roe is ever overturned, that abortion will be illegal in the state of South Dakota except to save the life of a mother. That stands today and is true. Uh, and I also believe that now we need to really focus on supporting these mothers in crisis, these mothers that have unplanned pregnancies that weren't prepared for it. What can we do to get them health care, get them financial assistance, what, how we can connect them to nonprofits or churches that would support them, and then maybe even connect them to adoptive families that may be wanting uh, to raise their children if that's the route these mothers choose. So that's something I think we can all do better in this country is really letting them know that there are other options that aren't necessarily going to create a crisis and upturn their life. The concern that I keep hearing from people is basically that, you know, this is 50 years right now of, of, of precedent of a whole, I mean, you know, structures created around it now. So w women may lose their lives because of this decision. That's, and I mean, and the people I speak with are they have genuine concerns, mm -hmm. right? How do you respond to them? Well, if you look at every state and how they're making these decisions, that's the best place to get a response that fits the situation there for those individuals. Um, these discussions will be had now among the public and there. Uh, every state will approach it differently. Um, I would say that most of the states will have the same approach that South Dakota has landed on. If it is to save the life of a mother, then it would be allowed. Um, you know, that is a life, um, every life still having value. 
and that's a, a doctor would make in conjunction with adhering to the law and the mother and her perspective as well. So that's what I think is critically important is people act as though this decision uh, was saying that, that that, you know, was something that is tragic where really what this is doing is giving us a much more responsive decision quicker because it happens at the state level rather than dealing and with a court that shouldn't be legislating anyways. The court makes decisions and, and based on the constitutionality of what these statutes are and releases that, legislating needs to happen at the state level. And you're not worried that, you know, because of, in your state you'll have people who, who believe strongly in the right to abortion. I don't know at what level, of mm -hmm. course, there's these gradients. And you're, you're not concerned you, won't, you wouldn't be able to represent them with that view? No, I think my job is to follow the law as well. You know, there are people in our state who support abortion and disagree with me on this topic. I, and we've had ballot measures before in South Dakota where people have chosen to leave abortion illegal and make, make it available still. So, uh, you know, I think our education process to the public will have to be aggressive, make sure they know the truth, because uh, what we have right now is not necessarily a public that's on board with overturning Roe, uh, but we need to let them know on why this is a better process going forward. So let's switch gears a little bit. Uh -huh. And, um, you know, you're, you're recently suing the federal government about not allowing the federal government allowing you to do fireworks at mm -hmm. uh, Mount Rushmore. Now, now, why is this so important, I guess, is the question. You know, this is, this is a big deal for you, I think. Yeah, people ask me that a lot. Like, Christy, why are you making such a big deal over fireworks? And it would be because... Uh, the federal government and the president is denying us this fireworks celebration and breaking federal law when he does it. He's not following the law. There's a federal statute that says, called the Administrative Procedures Act, that says once you check all the boxes of meeting the requirements for environmental studies, water quality issues, uh, fire issues, wildfire um, cooperation, and even consultation with tribes, that if you do check those boxes, then the permit should be granted. We have done that, and still they have denied us this permit to conduct this fireworks show at Mount Rushmore. So at this point, it's just political and being punitive. And uh, my duty is to defend my state. You know, South Dakota's number one industry is agriculture. Our second largest industry is tourism. A big part of that is Mount Rushmore and being proud of those four leaders on that mountain and our country's freedom and liberty that it stands for is important to us and getting people to visit us. Um, that's our one chance every year to really showcase the monument is on July 3rd, the night before July 4th, when we have this fireworks show and the next morning when people wake up on Independence Day, everywhere in the world they're playing shots of Mount Rushmore and the fireworks going off. So it's a great chance for us to market our state and to benefit the tourism industry, but also it's a great chance to celebrate America. So unfortunately with this administration, I end up suing them quite often. Uh, you know, President Trump was in the White House. I was on offense every day. He helped me solve problems. Ever since Joe Biden came in, I've been on defense. My only tool I have is to challenge him and how he's doing his job in federal court. The subtitle of your book is Lessons from the Heartland. Mm -hmm. you know, so what would you say is the most important lesson from the heartland that the coasts can take? You know, just that what is special about America still exists. I believe that uh, from South Dakota, from the middle of this country, is inspiration. 
It's a way of life that people are hungry for right now. We saw immediately trends change during the pandemic. People used to want to vacation in tropical destinations, beaches, that changed completely to where now the number one place that people search they want to spend time is small towns in rural America. And I think it's because, yes, it's a remarkable. It's amazing to me because I think it reminds them of what this country is in our beginnings in the American West. And it's hopeful and optimistic. Uh, we wake up every day uh, in South Dakota grateful and happy. And I think it's because of our way of life taking care of each other. So if you read this book, I hope you get a glimpse of that. It's a little bit of the story of South Dakota and, and, and how I hope that this country can return to that. We believe in rule of law, uh, upholding our law enforcement officers, respecting them, taking care of our neighbors, cooperating together, and our economy is thriving, families are successful, parents are parents, and uh, kids are doing great. So I think it is inspirational for the kind of community, state, and country that people want to live in today. Any interest in seeking a higher office? Oh, you know, not necessarily. I'm running for re-election to be governor of South Dakota this year. I'm really hoping people will trust me to do that job for another four years. Um, I know there's a lot of interest in the presidential race in 2024. I'm not convinced it has to be me. I think that we, we have good people who want to run, um, but we need strong leaders. And I'm only interested in those who really know how to defend this country. So, um, and I do think never hurts to have a cowboy we can find one of those or a cowgirl. But I did bring you a cowboy hat as a gift. So I wanted to present it to you if possible. But as a little token of our appreciation from South Dakota, everybody makes a better decision when they're wearing a cowboy hat. So it's wonderful, I think. Yeah. Look at you. You're perfect. Now I just need to get you a horse. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. Well, Governor Christine Ohm, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you all for joining Governor Christy Noem and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. Her book again is Not My First Rodeo, Lessons from the Heartland. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek.